Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. By 1942, with everyday essentials like butter, sugar, eggs, milk, meat, flour, fuel, and even clothes in limited supply and strictly rationed, life was tough, money was tight, and ordinary people would be forced to make desperate decisions simply to survive. Having yet to fully appreciate how invaluable women would be in Britain's defence, the Second World War proved to be a turning point for women's suffrage. As with men dying in their millions, women would become the backbone of the war effort, not only later as conscripted soldiers, but also as munitions workers, doctors, fire crews, hauliers, air raid wardens, and police constables. With the economy in disarray and honest jobs being badly paid, even good women were forced to take drastic steps. And with the cities full of soldiers, sailors and airmen, with heavy wallets and empty hearts, some women turned to prostitution, becoming a housewife by day and a whore by night, in a clandestine affair hidden from their husbands. But unbeknownst to any woman, during February 1942, a sadistic sexual sadist stalked the blacked-out and bombed-out streets of the West End. So far, three unrelated women had been tortured, posed and mutilated on three consecutive nights in the first half of his five-day killing spree. No one knew his name, and yet all three women had found him confident, charming and unassuming. No one saw his face, and yet... In his presence, they all felt safe, happy, and comfortable. No one saw him kill, and yet, as he smiled, chatted, drank, none of these women had any idea of the horror which awaited them at the hands of this homicidal maniac. But tonight, with his bloodlust escalating, and his sexual drive unsated, he would go in search of his next victim. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part four of the full, true and untold story 
of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing in Sussex Gardens, W2, in an area most people call Paddington, which was formerly known as Tyburnia, a district made famous as the host of London's bloodiest execution site, the Tyburn Tree, a hangman's gallows situated at Marble Arch, at the junction of Edgware Road and Oxford Street, where many a bad lad's neck was stretched, yanked and snapped. Constructed during the Victorian era of the early to mid-1800s, although most of the greenery has since been tarmacked and turned into drives, Sussex Gardens is still an affluent area, consisting of one long L-shaped street with tall, thin and stunning brown-bricked five- and six-storey terrace houses on both sides, with tall white windows and white Doric columns on every door. And although each flat currently sells for roughly £1 million apiece, owing to its proximity to Hyde Park, being just one street away from Paddington Station, a haven for hookers and bored businessmen with boners, although still beautiful, much of Sussex Gardens has lost its initial value, having been repurposed as flats, offices and modestly priced hotels, full of plumbers, brickies and roofers who can lay pipe, trowel mortar, and repoint tiles, whether you want it done or not. And yet they are physically incapable of seeing without ogling, yawning without belching, pissing without dribbling, thinking without farting, talking without saying fucking, or watching sport, which they pronounce sport. And yet it was here, in the well-presented ground-floor flat of 187 Sussex Gardens, that the brutal murder of the Blackout Ripper's next victim occurred. And her name was Doris Junet. Wrongly assumed to be French, Doris Junet was actually born Doris Elizabeth Robson on either the 21st of March in the year 1909, according to her husband, 1906, according to the National Census, or 1907, according to her birth certificate. And although she may have shaved an odd year off her age here and there, there was no denying that Doris Robson was ashamed of her impoverished past. Born amidst the industrial working-class sprawl of Leamington in Northumberland, in the northeast of England, although Doris's birthplace was just four miles from Brighton, where nine years earlier Evelyn Margaret Hamilton was born, the difference between their upbringings was colossal. As being surrounded by collieries, factories, railways, glassworks and iron foundries, everything her family owned which wasn't much, was smothered in dirt, dust and a thick blanket of black soot. Originally from Farlam in Cumbria, Doris's mother, Elizabeth, was one of nine children born to Thomas and Barbara Robson. And although they survived on a coal miner's wage 
and lived in a cramped lodging house with three other families. Their children were well educated, with four of the siblings becoming school teachers, including Elizabeth and her younger sisters, Isabella and Mary. Sadly, as an unmarried 41-year-old single parent, shortly before the birth of her only child, Elizabeth died owing to complications. And Doris Elizabeth Robson, who had no mother, no father, and no siblings, was raised by her maternal aunties, Isabella and Mary, in the gloomy windswept headland of Hartlepool, The next two decades of Doris's life are a bit of a mystery, as with no school reports, no census records, and no accurate date of birth, it's hard to trace where she went, who with, and why. But being a working class northern female, who had to live with the shame of being born a bastard, to a dead mother, an absent father, and adopted by middle-aged spinsters, Life can't have been easy. But 20 years later, by 1935, Doris had moved to London to make a better life for herself. Being unskilled, unqualified and having no career to fall back on, Doris didn't want to work, to slog her guts out 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, in an endless slew of filth, drudgery and exhaustion, in a joyless job for a thankless boss, and all for a pittance. Doris felt she deserved better, and dreamed of becoming a kept woman, who lived in a posh house, wore mink furs, fine jewels, and never had to lift a finger, having bagged herself a wealthy husband. And in August 1935, her dream had come true. Believing in love at first sight, within three months of meeting, on the 4th of November 1935, at Paddington Registry Office, 25-year-old Doris Elizabeth Robson married 60-year-old Henri Alfred Junet, a naturalised French citizen who managed several hotels in the southeast of England. And although their marriage was impulsive, their 35-year age gap was obvious, and whether she actually loved him was debatable. As a wealthy hotelier, with a silver Rolls Royce, a large bank balance, and being a kindly man who showered his wife with expensive gifts, like fine furs, a gold watch, and a black fountain pen engraved with her new initials of DJ. Mrs. Doris Elizabeth Junet moved with her husband from Eastbourne to Farnborough until eventually they moved to London. And although Henri was aware of Doris's desperate days, when being broke and hungry, she worked as a West End sex worker she had assured him that those days were long behind her. And finally, 
with Henri managing the very prestigious five-star Royal Court Hotel in Sloane Square, in a very affluent area of Kensington, Doris truly was living the dream, and life was good, as together they moved into a luxurious ground-floor flat situated at 187 Sussex Gardens. Henri and Doris Junet moved into flat one of 187 Sussex Gardens on Monday the 26th of January 1942, by which time, although air raids were regular, looting was rife and rationing was routine, the Blackout Ripper was roughly 98 miles away in the west of England and was still six days away from being relocated to London. So for now, Doris Junet was safe. Evelyn Hamilton was alive, but about to be laid off. Evelyn Oatley was being comforted by her rather dull but eternally loving husband, Harold. And Margaret Florence Lowe was drunk, not realising that the next time that her beloved daughter would see her again, Margaret and three other women would be dead. Over those seven years of marriage, Doris had become accustomed to the finer things in life. Gorging on good food, quaffing fine wines, and sleeping on silk sheets. And as she was waited on hand and foot by butlers, maids, and chefs, and escorted to fancy parties in a chauffeur-driven silver Rolls-Royce, and being immaculately dressed in the very latest fashions, with manicured nails, coiffured hair, and pristine makeup. The ever stylish Mrs. Doris Junet looked very much like a real lady. But following a series of bad business deals, lengthy court trials, escalating gambling debts, and with the war seriously having put the boot in on tourism, the Rolls Royce was sold, the servants were laid off and Henri was almost broke. And with no savings to access, a status to upkeep, and a trophy wife with expensive tastes to fund, when 67-year-old Henri should have been enjoying his retirement, he was working day and night at the prestigious five-star Royal Court Hotel in Sloane Square. But not as the hotel's owner, now, he was simply a manager. Henri would later describe their marriage as perfectly happy. We never had a disagreement. But for Doris, this was far from the truth. Before moving back to London, as his funds dried up and life became a little more drab, being petrified of returning to her impoverished roots. Doris regularly travelled from Farnborough and Eastbourne to the West End, under the guise of a bored housewife heading to Piccadilly to meet some pals, when really she had returned to prostitution. Nicknamed Olga, 
as although many prostitutes thought that she was French owing to her surname, many punters thought she looked Russian, a fact that Doris never denied, as being a well-dressed lady with a mysterious and exotic past paid better than being plain old Doris Robson, the Geordie. And as a 32-year-old, 5 foot 10 inch tall brunette with long legs, a slim build and striking features, a mixture of hard, moody and demure, Doris was very different from the usual prostitute. And being very much an elegant lady who was both alluring and aloof, Olga drew in a much wealthier clientele, whether businessmen, diplomats, officials, officers, and hopefully, Doris thought, an older, richer gentleman, who could keep her in the life to which she had become accustomed. As with Henri almost broke, Doris needed a new sugar daddy. To say that Henri didn't trust his wife would be an understatement. And although most nights his job dictated that he had to sleep at the Royal Court Hotel, every evening, from 7pm till 9.30pm, for those two and a half hours, Henri and Doris Junet would settle down to dinner in their ground floor flat at 187 Sussex Gardens. By 7pm, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, as Henri and Doris tucked into what would be their last meal together, as the icy cold corpses of Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley were lying on a slab at Paddington and Westminster mortuaries, and the mutilated body of Margaret Florence Lowe had lain still, silent and undiscovered for 40 hours. Barely one mile away, at the Volunteer Public House on Baker Street, a red-headed corporal was necking back pints and supping free whiskies with a pleasant, blue-eyed, fair-haired airman who was a charmer with the ladies, whose pockets were flush with cash, and having already slaughtered three women, tonight he would go in search of his next victim. The last four hours of Doris Junet's life were unremarkable. Having finished their evening meal of chicken chasseur, root vegetables and white wine, needing some fresh air, Doris donned a stylish black velvet hat, a long black coat with a fur collar, a black leather handbag and a large black umbrella, as the recent snowy blizzard had turned to rain. And having left the dirty crockery on the dinner table, Doris accompanied Henri on the four-minute walk to Paddington Station, where having promised her husband she'd head straight home. As he hopped on the westbound district line train to Sloan Square, she waved him goodbye for one last time. But Doris had no plans to return home. At 9.40pm, with the Blackout Ripper still in Piccadilly, having escorted a 30-year-old woman called Greta Haywood back to the Universal Brasserie on German Street, 
Doris was spotted by local prostitute Patricia Borg, standing at the junction of Edgware Road and Sussex Gardens. A busy crossroads, just a three-minute walk from her home, and a ten-minute stroll from the air raid shelter on Montague Place. And although Patricia, and the lady she knew only as Olga, only spoke very briefly, opening with the greeting of Hello Stranger, and closing with a See You. Having met a client, serviced his needs, and received her money, all within 15 minutes, by the time that Patricia had returned to the same spot, Doris was gone. Moments later, two call girls called Ruby Ricketts and Grace chatted to Doris as she strolled south down Edgware Road towards Marble Arch, where accompanied by her friend Beatrice Lang, and needing a stiff drink to keep her strength up for the long night ahead, Doris drank a whiskey and soda at a corner house tea room called Maison Lyonnaise where just four nights earlier, a shy pharmacist called Evelyn Hamilton had potentially met her murderer as she celebrated her 41st birthday alone. But that night, being in Piccadilly, the blackout ripper would not frequent Maison Lyonnaise. So as the two friends chatted over a drink, Doris confided to Beatrice that with money tight, their marriage tense, and the couple sleeping in separate beds, Doris had a date tonight with her new sugar daddy, a wealthy regular client in a military uniform, who she referred to only as the captain. At 10.20pm on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, Doris and Beatrice left Maison Lyonnaise, walked east along Oxford Street and parted ways outside of Selfridges. And with Doris eager to see her new beau, she headed into Piccadilly, right into the path of the Blackout Ripper. Or she would have done, had fate not taken an unexpected twist. As with his wallet full, his liver pickled, and his sexual appetite unsated, having hopped in a taxi with a 34-year-old red-headed sex worker called Catherine Mulcahy, as Doris walked east along Oxford Street to Piccadilly, the blackout ripper headed west to Paddington. And although for now, Doris Junet was safe, an hour later, she would be dead. How she knew the captain, who he was, or whether she had actually met him that night, we shall never know. As having waved her friend goodbye, Beatrice was the last person to see Doris alive. For whatever reason, whether the captain was late, early, or had cancelled their date. Shortly after 11pm, Doris had left the semi-safety of Piccadilly Circus, had returned home to Paddington, and as the cruel hand of fate took another unexpected twist, 
with the red-headed sex worker, Catherine Mulcahy, living just one street southeast of 187 Sussex Gardens. A short while later, whether for money, boredom, or companionship, Doris Junet opened her door to the Blackout Ripper. At 7pm on Friday the 13th of February 1942, regular as clockwork, Henri hopped on the eastbound district line train from Sloan Square to Paddington Station, strolled the four-minute walk to Sussex Gardens, and like Pavlov's dog, the second he saw home, his stomach started to rumble. But something didn't seem right, as by the white Doric columns of his front door, on his doorstep, a full twelve hours after they had been delivered, he spotted two bottles of milk. Feeling confused, as Henri entered his blacked-out flat, calling out his wife's name, Doris. but getting no reply, Doris. he spotted on the table their dirty dinner dishes, where they had left them the night before. The bread stale, the cabbage cold, the white sauce congealed. But there was no sign of Doris anywhere. Not in the front room, not in the kitchen, not in the bathroom. All that remained was the bedroom. With the key missing and the lock shut, as much as Henri jiggled the handle and shoved against the panels, the small-framed 67-year-old couldn't budge the heavy wooden door. But spying through the keyhole, and seeing the dull red glow and the soft warm heat of the electric bar fire, it was clear that someone was inside. And as much as he banged on the door, still nobody answered. Deeply concerned, Henri fetched the police, and at 7.50pm, two burly bobbies from Paddington Police Station, PC Payne and PC Cox, with Henri's permission, used their considerable bulk to bash down the sturdy wooden door. Sparing Henri from the horror in the bedroom beyond, PC Cox sat with him on the sofa, a comforting hand over his shoulder, and gave him the bad news. But what PC Payne saw that night would be burned into his eyes forever. At a little after 8pm, just three hours after the grisly discovery of the mutilated remains of Margaret Florence Lowe, one mile away at 9-10 Gosfield Street, Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare the detective who was heading up the murder investigation into Margaret Hamilton, four nights prior on Montague Place, entered the flat of 187 Sussex Gardens. Although instantly shocked, as the small dark room hung heavy with the stench of steamy vomit, as inexperienced officers struggled to cope with the sight, for Detective Inspector Clare, this was the all-too-familiar calling card of the Blackout Ripper. 
As before, there was no sign of a struggle. Feeling comfortable, reassured by his kind face, his sweet smile, his soft English voice, and his twinkling blue eyes, Doris was lulled into a warm sense of security as she led the tall, handsome, and fair-haired man into her bedroom. And although, like most of her clients, he had been drinking, he was charming, alluring, and wearing the uniform of a military man, a hero. And in his company, she felt safe. As she welcomed him in, Doris had already hung up her long black fur-collared coat in the wardrobe, perched her black velvet hat and black leather handbag on the top shelf, and placed her dress, stockings, brassiere and brown brogue shoes on a small wooden chair by the toasty warmth of the electric fire. And now she was dressed in nothing but a black quilted bathrobe. With the small back bedroom comprising of a wardrobe, a dressing table, a chair, and two twin beds placed a few inches apart, Doris sat on the bed farthest from the door, smoking a cigarette as the man disrobed, shedding his long military greatcoat, unbuttoning his blue tunic, kicking off his heavy black rubber-soled boots, and flinging off his jauntily worn woolen side cap which was emblazoned with a military insignia. And even though his tie was crooked, his knuckles were scuffed, his breath smelled of whiskey, and his belt was missing, having done this many times before, Doris didn't feel threatened at all. What happened next is unknown. As with her being a prostitute, with him being a punter, and several male rubber contraceptives found scattered about the bed and the floor, two of which had been unrolled and used. Sex may have taken place. But with the bedroom floor littered with spent cigarette butts, and neither of the condoms containing any semen, maybe, for whatever reason, sex didn't take place. And yet, as far as we know, what happened next was unprovoked, unexpected, and shocking. With a swift hard blow across her left cheek, which fractured her jaw, rendered her giddy, and knocked her onto the bed, before she could scream for help, with his powerful thighs straddling her arms and torso, his full body weight pinning her down, as he reached across to the small wooden chair, he grabbed one of her black stockings, wrapped it around her neck, and with both hands, he pulled tight. Gasping for air, the wooden inhale, and screaming words which no one would hear, as Doris stared up at the grinning man sat on top of her, with her face all purple and swollen, 
her vision fading to black as her pupils dilated and the whites of her eyes ruptured with blood. Her left-handed attacker tied the tights in a knot under her left jaw, leaving a depression around her neck half an inch deep, which fractured her larynx and compressed her tongue, tonsils and windpipe. And as she drifted in and out of consciousness, the blackout ripper proceeded to mutilate her body, whether she was dead or alive. Using a razor blade from her dressing table and another as yet unidentified household weapon, with his victim suitably subdued and immobile, he took his time, savouring every moment. As he sliced a five-inch slit from her stomach to her privates, slashed a three-inch gash through her pubic hair, sunk the razor blade deep into her genitals, inflicting a six-and-a-half-inch wound in and across her vagina, and using two converging cuts, he carved a four-inch slit around her left breast, which almost severed her nipple. The one saving grace being that, unlike his other victims, no candle, no torch, nor curling tongs were inserted into her vagina. As with the sheer terror of her agonizing death, causing her to wet herself, with the bed soaked in a pungent mix of blood and urine, he decided against it. With his bloodlust sated, he calmly dressed, fastening his blue tunic and trousers, buttoning up his brown shirt and tie, pulling on his large military greatcoat, tying the laces on his black heavy boots, and fixing, at a jaunty angle, his woollen side cap. And needing to satisfy his greed, from her black leather handbag he stole roughly five pounds worth of untraceable banknotes, and from her lifeless wrist he stole a gold watch, given to Doris by her husband. As a crude memento of a delightful night, he pocketed her black fountain pen, uniquely etched with her very identifiable initials of DJ. And even more bizarrely, from her dressing table, he took her worthless greeny-blue comb with several teeth missing. But before he left, as one final act of humiliation to conduct upon the corpse of Doris Junet, laying her lifeless body diagonally across the bed, with her black quilted bathrobe spread wide, her left arm outstretched, her right hand across her genitals, her purple swollen head hanging over the side of the bed, her tongue protruding and her bloodshot eyes gazing towards the door. He posed her lifeless body as a grisly sight to greet the poor unfortunate who would come looking for her. Having tidied his hair, straightened his tie, and checked he hadn't left any personal possessions behind, his wallet, his keys, his hat, 
his military ID, or anything stupid which would incriminate him. Having been cautious not to leave any fingerprints, having wiped down anything he'd touched, and with no screams, no noise, and no witnesses of any kind, he locked the bedroom door, disposed of the key, strolled out of 187 Sussex Gardens, and into the inky black night, the blackout ripper disappeared. Across five nights, over four streets in London's West End, four totally different and entirely unrelated women, for whatever reason, had been ripped, tortured and posed by an unidentified sadistic maniac. All had suffered the same fate, strangulation, mutilation and humiliation. All had been sliced, beaten and violated. All had been robbed, but only of untraceable banknotes, never bank books or ration cards. And although his sexual sadism compelled him to steal such high-risk trinkets as a handkerchief etched with a unique laundry mark, an anniversary gift gold wristwatch, an initialed fountain pen, and a monogrammed cigarette case containing a photo of the victim's mother. None of these items had been found. And with no physical sightings, no credible suspects, and no fingerprints which matched anyone on Scotland Yard's entire police index, the police were at a loss as to who this man was. And it's here that his killing spree would cease. Four women were dead. 41-year-old pharmacist Evelyn Margaret Hamilton, 34-year-old dancer, wife and sex worker Evelyn Oatley, 43-year-old veteran prostitute and mother Margaret Florence Lowe, and 32-year-old Doris Elizabeth Junet. A woman raised in such poverty she would do anything never to be poor or hungry again. And yet her desperate need drove her to her own death. And having been discovered at 7pm on Friday the 13th of February 1942, a full 18 hours later, although Doris Junet was the last woman found, she wasn't his fourth victim in his five-day killing spree. She was his sixth. As barely an hour before Doris's death, two unrelated women on two different streets in two separate parts of the West End will become the fourth and fifth victims of the Blackout Ripper. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to join us next week for the fifth part of the true story of the Blackout Ripper. <gasps> A big thank you goes out to my brand new Patreon supporters, who get exclusive access to original Murder Mile content. My new Patreon supporters are Josie Miller, 
Alina Ayashina, Stephanie Schwartz, Karen Kluster, and an extra special friend who has to remain nameless. And all of whom have asked me some personal questions. So for you guys only, here are the answers. Never on a Sunday, occasionally in public, only in church, pants are optional, and Vaseline is a must. There you go. I hope that helps. Murder Mile was researched and written by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is part five of The Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening and sleep well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello? What? Why are you still listening? The show's over. Go home. No, go home. Actually, the show's not over. Uh, for those of you who know, this is Extra Mile. This is the piece of uh, extra um, extra program that we put at the end of each uh, murder mile. So we dive into each case a little bit more. Um, so this is just for you guys. Most people have probably switched off. But for those of you, uh, this is something extra. Um, that was a difficult episode to record. Uh, not just the content, but fucking hell, the sounds here is really awful. I am moored up at the back of Wormwood Scrubs in West London. That, you can hear that there, that's a scrapyard. Scrapyard has been going on all day. Above me, this is not added sound effects. Above me, you can hear a whine. That is the planes coming out of Heathrow. <laughs> there you go. Right over me now. Behind me <laughs> is the trains going into Paddington and going north here is a train line. It's a, an industrial train line and outside my window I've got a coot that is desperate to have sex and I've got people running back and forth past the boat. God, this has taken like five hours to record this. Oh, it's been so frustrating. Uh, and my stomach has been rumbling and I've got a sore eye uh, and my nose is running. So I have no idea how I'm going to record this uh, or how I'm going to edit it. That's going to be the nightmare. Right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. That was episode four of the Blackout Ripper, the Doris Junet story. Um, now, obviously, uh, the, the, this story is very similar to a lot of the others, uh, except she was a very... Look, you can hear that coot and the train there. How annoying is this? Uh, uh, the Doris Junay story, obviously uh, her death is very similar to uh, all the other women, uh, but she's very much a different woman. We learnt about her life, about how she came from poverty, how, she, like many of the others, she, she dreamed of becoming a, uh, becoming rich and wealthy and having a nice life, and she did that. She married a nice man, but she still ended up being a prostitute for uh, whatever reasons. Uh Oh, got, got got cold. So uh, what I tried to do with this one was to tell it in a very different way. Um, obviously, I told half the story uh, from her perspective, but slowly. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I've fed in who the Blackout Ripper was. Now, if you've already listened to episodes one, two, and three, now. Hopefully you've already worked out who he was. Now you can maybe, if you want to, go back and have a re-listen. Because all 
the information you needed was already there. I'd already fed, led a trail and I've already led. Uh, I've already actually told you where he's based, where he is, where he was going, what he's about. So this is all quite exciting. Um, I quite enjoyed writing this episode. It was a bit of a head fuck, though. I apologise for my bad language, but it was trying to keep all of these stories together was a real, a real nightmare. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I hope it was. Uh, I've tried to suspense it out for you rather than just dumping you with information. I've tried to kind of drip feed it. So uh, so now we know um, roughly who he is. I almost put a little bit too much information into this episode. I actually uh, I actually went back in and edited some out. Because I was like, oh, I'm giving you too much information. Too much too soon. I would rather you just go, oh, oh military man. That's all you're going to hear. Military man, fair-haired, blue-eyed, tall, handsome. Uh, what did he do? I'll give you a description of what he wore. Uh, we had a quite interesting description about... Uh, him and her in the room together the 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 relationship between a punter and a prostitute um, that also comes in handy later on because i found i found a really interesting uh witness statement from a prostitute who actually uh had sex with the blackout ripper uh so we'll be going into that into a much later ep- in a much later episode but you'll see hopefully what i'm going to try and do is show you give you an insight into the blackout ripper's mind so we've looked into his life with the ladies he's murdered much later on uh will be uh because he th- there were other prostitutes who he slept with and he didn't kill them and that's what i find fascinating why did he kill some and not the others uh entirely baffling so um i hope that was interesting and enjoyable um some things i didn't put into this episode uh was much of the stuff about Henri, Henri Junet um that was quite annoying calling him Henri uh and then the next word after it was one of the words things i had to say in here was uh Henri hopped and the problem is Henri and then you've got hopped it's like soft h hard h it was a real bugger especially when you've got the construction work going on outside it's got such a pain so Henri uh what do we know about Henri there's big chunks that I've deliberately left out um he was a slightly crooked man uh he was taken to court on many occasions for dodgy business dealings uh I think I mentioned in there that he'd uh, there been a couple of court cases mostly towards uh, to do with fraud or misrepresentation of business affairs uh, he previously previously had had a chauffeur um, uh, he, he, of his ro- silver Rolls Royce. Very nice. But he liked to kind of skirt around grey issues to save money. Uh, but as far as I can tell, he didn't have a criminal record of any kind. Uh, he loved the high life. Um, he was once summoned in court. This was back in June 1913, so about 20-odd years before... He even met Doris Juno uh, for encouraging his driver to speed at what they called was an excessive rate, uh, which when I looked into it, it was 30 miles an hour. Yeah, I know. He was bombing along the Cowley Road at 30 miles an hour, encouraging his driver to drive faster. uh, And he ploughed his uh, Rolls Royce into a hedge. He was arrested. Oh, no, sorry. uh, Yeah, he was arrested, taken to court. Um... 
in order to prove that the driver, his chauffeur, was driving, they needed the man who was in the back, who was Henri, to prove that that was a driver. And Henri just went, I have no idea who was driving at the time. He had he said in court, I have no idea <laughs> who was driving my car, my Rolls Royce, that I was sitting in the back of being chauffeured around by. And therefore the driver, whose name was Alfred Sutherland, uh, was let off and Henri uh, was not charged. Uh, oddly, he wasn't even charged with aiding and abetting. Uh, he was uh, let off that case. Uh, so, um, But uh, I left a lot of this information out just to not throw you off too much. I think we've got too, a lot of information in there already about the Blackout Ripper and I didn't want to throw in a red herring with you going... Who is Henri? Is Henri a suspect? No, not at all. Henri, that night, uh, as we've heard a couple of times, was at the Royal Court Hotel in Sloan Square at the time of the murder. Lots of people confirmed, because he was the manager of the hotel, he couldn't just disappear. So he, he was there, he was the night manager, he was there all night, everyone saw him, customers, his alibi checks out. And also, he seemed to love his wife, so why would he kill her? Do you know she's not worth anything she's not worth financially any money to him i don't as far as i know her life wasn't insured his was uh so that's why i deliberately left that out of this story um the royal court hotel in sloan square still exists today uh it's called the sloan square hotel it's very exclusive it's kind of like a five-star hotel obviously scumbags like me aren't allowed in but um nice people like you if you in london have a little look pop by if you want to it's not too far away from sussex gardens uh which is great the uh i will post online a video of sussex gardens uh so you can have a look at that and you will see uh it hasn't changed at all since the day of the murder at all which is great um one thing that i'm uncertain of is obviously we know that henri knew that his wife doris was a prostitute uh, but I can't seem to I can't find out where he met her this is the the baffling thing so uh, at that time he appeared to have been in uh, Eastbourne as far as I can tell um, but whether at that point she was traveling back and forth to London as a West End prostitute or whether she whether he met her in London I don't know um, obviously she was looking for a sugar daddy that's the thing that all of her friends say all of the witnesses said she was looking for a sugar daddy was Henri the sugar daddy was he one of the sugar daddies who she met as a prostitute uh, I think it's possible but I can't confirm that so also that's not in the episode as well uh, another detail uh, the captain I would love to give you more details on that unfortunately that's how it goes when you're dealing with a lot of um, cases to do with prostitutes because it's a clandestine affair it's an illegal act between a man who's a stranger a woman who's a stranger it's a cash transaction it's a nightmare for the police to really look into these cases because who's going to give their real name most of the time the prostitutes give fake names um, and the men never come forward the men who use the prostitutes because why would you if it's a murder case why would you come forward and say yes put me forward as a murder suspect and while you're at it 
uh, accuse me of using prostitutes, which is an illegal offence, which is arrestable. Uh, so it rarely happens. So it's hard to track down who these men were. Um, he's only known as the captain. Um, he, uh, I'm guessing he's old. He's an older man. He's probably retired. Uh, he might not be a captain. He might not be military at all. It could just be a name. Um, so we really don't know anything about him. So obviously I didn't put too much about him into this episode to throw you off. Because what's the point? It's already a complicated episode. Um... Which I also hope you show, hopes to sh to show you how difficult it is for the police to do their job, you know, to track down who these people are. Like uh, Doris was meeting a man called the Captain. How do you start searching for the Captain? Um, which is why I've, I've said this before. It annoys me so much on on uh, crime shows and podcasts and things like that when they say police did such an awful job. Which is easy to say in hindsight. It's easy to turn around when the evidence is all in front of you and say, police did an awful job. But when you're being drip-fed information, you have to remember the police aren't psychic. Their job is to disseminate each piece of evidence as it's presented before them in the order that it's presented. And most of this information, when you look at the cases, is quite often wrong or biased or just flat-out lies. Um... That scrapyard is really annoying. It started about two hours ago and it hasn't stopped since. Uh, if there's a murder in West London tonight and it's a scrapyard worker, you know who's done it. <laughs> um, interesting thing. Oh, look, aircraft coming over now. Lovely. Um, interesting things that I uh, I found with this episode... Uh, is that the Blackout Ripper seems to be learning from his mistakes. Um, he didn't leave fingerprints. Uh, now, whether he, because it was cold, did he have gloves? Did he leave them on while he was inside? I don't know. Did he wipe things down? Possibly. Um, or was he just more cautious about not leaving fingerprints this time? Was he not touching things? I don't know. It's 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 really hard to work that out. Or, or, or were fingerprints there? They they just weren't found it's it's really hard to tell um also um obviously we know that she was Doris Juno was murdered or uh, mutilated using a uh, razor blade but the pathologist who was Bernard Spilsbury again on this one said possibly also another weapon but there was no other weapon found Do you know how before the blackout ripper would kind of pose the, uh, he'd pose the body, then he'd get the uh, the weapons and pose them kind of around the body, almost as like trophies, going, look at what I've done. This is what how I mutilated this woman. He didn't do that this time. He took the razor blade, put it on the dressing table, left it there, which I don't think was posing because there were things found on the dressing table that he'd stolen. There was... Um, the uh, police report said that there was kind of a dusty outline of things that he had taken obviously the fountain pen perhaps uh, other things as well we're not too sure um, but he didn't seem to have another weapon at all so we don't know whether he bought it with him or whether it was in the room and he took it and disposed of it elsewhere so all we know about is the razor blade um, maybe he did maybe he just had used the razor blade we really don't know um i think my particular favorite thing in this episode is the crossover so um Obviously, in this episode, we've got the return of Maison Lyonnaise. Uh, 
it only occurred to me as I was writing this episode because I had my notes in front of me and it was saying that uh, Doris Juno and her friend Beatrice Lang met and in the notes it says at the Cumberland Hotel and I went oh, why does that ring a bell Cumberland Hotel and of course Cumberland Hotel is the, the big building but the corner house in the Cumberland Hotel is Maison Lyonnaise and I was like oh how fantastic so the place where four days earlier Margaret uh, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton met with uh, well, potentially the Blackout Ripper that is where Doris Juno was just a couple of hours later having a meal just before her death just like Evelyn Hamilton so I really enjoyed that I thought that was that was a nice nice little twist on there uh, also the fact that Doris Juno um, and the Blackout Ripper crossed paths I hadn't really twigged that with my notes uh, I'd written everything down and what I tend to do is I put everything in chronological order and then I start putting things together and I, to be honest before I started this, this I hadn't reread all of my notes for quite a while because I was working on the other episodes and I'd entirely forgotten that Doris Juno went to Piccadilly and I went oh this is really exciting Doris Juno went to Piccadilly which means she's in the path of the Blackout Ripper and then I double checked my other list which is uh, other victims and I've got a list of where the Blackout Ripper is for later episodes and I went oh shit no she's he's not there anymore he's left I went oh that's really bad but then actually when you think about that as an idea the fact that the two of them crossed over didn't know each other and were going in separate directions and then for whatever reason fate forced Doris Juno to head back home where the Blackout Ripper Literally, the, the the lady he met, Catherine Mulcahy, she lived literally one street away from 187 Sussex Gardens. So fate driving Doris Juno back to her home drove her into the path of the Blackout Ripper, where where she was heading, she would have been safe. Had she not headed home that night, she would have been okay. Uh... So yeah, I really enjoy. I really enjoyed these episodes. Uh, next week's episode will be something very different. We're still doing Blackout Ripper. Um, if you think you know where this is going, uh, message me on any of the social media platforms. Uh, but I guarantee you, episode five, you'll think you know where it's going, but you won't. Trust me, you won't. It is. It is baffling. But it's a really good episode. It will. Um, I will be writing this more from the Blackout Ripper's perspective, so you'll get more of an insight into his life uh, and his victims as well. It's going to be kind of a three-hander, really. Uh, so I'm looking forward to writing that, and then and then uh, after that will be an episode all about the Blackout Ripper. It will be as with everyone else. It will be kind of a a soup to nuts episode. Uh, I may need to do one on the trial. I'm not too sure. Or I could fit it. Yeah, no, I need, I need to do... Uh, yeah, I need to do one on the trial. Uh, and then I will do uh, an episode where we just dive into the uh, where the Blackout Ripper is when all these murders were happening. So you can kind of see the correlation. That's a hard thing to do. Uh, because the Blackout Ripper did give many witness statements about where he was at each time. Even... even Oh, I almost gave stuff away then. Even after whatever happened in episode 5 happened, he lied all the time. He's a massive liar. 
Uh, so all of his all of his statements saying about where he was at what time is full of bullshit. It massively is. Uh, so, whew, so that's me done. That was uh, that was hard work. That was. And look, the um, scrapyard is off again. Oh joy, what a treat! Uh, so uh, I'm going to wrap up now. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, uh, any questions? Buzz me on social media. I'm always happy to receive questions. Just just message me. Uh, yeah engagingly or join on the murder mile true crime podcast discussion group on facebook uh, i post lots of stuff on there every week uh, join us on there you can post me any questions and uh, i look forward to hearing from you hope you enjoyed that and uh, i'll join you next week for episode five of the blackout ripper Bye bye <laughs>